We continue our uh, study in the book of Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible, so pretty easy to find if uh, you're unfamiliar with the Bible. Um, <clears throat> we're going to read, beginning on page 53 this morning, <clears throat> and we're, we're covering basically the material of chapters 12 and 13, but we're not going to read all of that. We're going to have to summarize uh, parts of it. This is the establishment of the Passover and the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, the beginning of the deliverance of of Israel. Now, when we first read, uh, he's not establishing a a new form of the Hebrew calendar. He's not changing the Hebrew calendar Basically, it reads, this month is for you the first month, but now it's going to have a whole new meaning for you. It's going to have a whole new meaning for uh, this people. A whole new destiny is being brought about in the first month. So chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water. That was an idolatrous practice, by the way. But roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And then he basically repeats what he said in verse 15. 
And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing unleavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. You almost want to hear God say, did I say don't eat leavened bread, <laughs> right? <laughs> then in verses 21 through 28, he describes to the elders of Israel these same things, telling them to give this command and, and basically repeats what he has uh, said. <clears throat> then we come to the plague itself in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. About 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So there is further teaching, uh, a repeat of uh, the teaching, a little bit of an extension in those following verses. Then uh, I want to read a bit about the consecration of the firstborn, for this really is important. Um, The Lord said to Moses, this is chapter 13, verse 1, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then I want you to skip to verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey. This was an unclean animal and so couldn't be sacrificed. You shall redeem with the lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. 
And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It should be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us that we will understand your word, that we will remember what you have done for your people, both what you did for Israel in redeeming them and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus to redeem us. O Lord, bless us. Deepen our roots in the salvation through Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. One of the great events of my young life occurred in connection with my dad's drag strip. Yes, we had a drag strip. Boy, that was a fun thing for a kid to get to work at the drag strip every Saturday night. And we would have special events. Uh, it would cost more. More people would come. We'd have tons of people pour out for the, and, uh, for the drag strip. The greatest one I can ever remember was Art Arfon's The Green Monster. It was a jet. That was a car. And at the time, Art Arfon's held the land speed record, okay, out on the salt flats. He brings his jet, and I'm up there in the booth at this point. And he's about to do his first run. And so it starts whining. And you just think, how long? Well, we're not, he's not even started, okay? It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon you feel like it's a dentist drill just in the middle of your head, you know? And then suddenly he flips on the afterburners. And I thought I was going to die. Literally, I thought I was going to die. And we'd put a a car 50 feet behind the the jet, and it just burned and melted the side of the car as it turned it on its side, you know. And it blew down, and I mean, people were covering themselves and hiding their children. You know, it was just one of those events where you would just shake into the bottom of your, your roots of self, you know, that... This, this violent eruption is going to just consume us all up into fire, you know. It, just, it had that feeling about it. It was so magnificent. That's the word. It was magnificent. And you can imagine how we talked about it. I mean, you can kind of feel it right now, right? Um, and right now, more than 50 years later, if I talked with somebody that was there that night, we'd just be like this. And how did you feel? We're, just the memory of this magnificent event. And this magnificent event of the Exodus is what formed Israel as a people, which was the people out of which the Messiah came who redeems the whole world. This was the formation of the people that brought forth the Savior of the whole world. This is cataclysmic in its its effect on world history. The whole world hinges on this fantastic event of God delivering his people out of Egypt. And as you see, uh, right at the 
in, right at the event itself, the institution is established to remember it, right? To have that excited memory of what God has done for us far greater than my excited memory over one jet that flew down a quarter-mile track, right? And this, uh, this event leads, of course, it is a direct picture of that great final event of Christ Jesus himself. Every part of this we will see. We can't look at every part, but the ones we'll see... Uh, pictures for us, previews for us, the magnificent deliverance that we have in Christ Jesus. So we as well have a not yearly but weekly remembrance of the magnificent event that has shaped the whole of human history, even the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we talk about the establishment of Passover, we remember it was at Passover that Christ established the Lord's Supper. So even at the establishment of the new covenant, even at the, his own death, he created the institution to remember it. Just like in the Old Testament, when the actual deliverance was about to occur, the institution to remember it. Memory. Remembering is so important. Remembering strengthens and comforts and catches us up again into what Christ Jesus has accomplished for us. It defines us. It helps us realize the very salvation uh, of Christ in our lives. So we're going to look at things then and now, okay? Just touching on four or five of of things that we, we could touch on twice that many things, but just some of the things uh, from this passage to bring out uh, what it means now in our context. The first thing I want to talk about, taken from the latter part, from verse 29 and following, uh, is God's judgment then and now. God's judgment then and now. We... See the great cry in Egypt, Pharaoh himself having to be uh, awakened to this horrible news of death. And this was a judgment upon the gods of Egypt. He is the great manifestation of the gods, even Pharaoh. And yet, Pharaoh, where were you? Where's your protection? Oh, Pharaoh, your own child is dead. Where is the God now? Where, where is Ra, the great sun God? He's gone into his little closet for the night. He can't do anything. And it emphasizes night, midnight, night, three times there just to show the darkness, the, the devastation of it. Moses had said, your servants will come and prostrate themselves before me. You can imagine Pharaoh saying, that's a joke. Yeah, that's going to be a funny one, that my servants. And yet they come, no doubt prostrated themselves before Moses and said, please, Pharaoh wants to speak to you. So he had banished them and said, you will never come into my presence. Now his humiliation, begging them back into his presence so that he can gain relief. His words are broken. They're, they're jerky. 
uh, he, he's, he's speaking as though he can hardly say anything. He hardly get a sensible phrase out. Uh, go out. Go. Take your flocks. It's urgent. It's, it's the same words that were used in Genesis 19 where Lot tells his sons-in-law, Go. Get out of here. And so the ultimate humiliation then of seeking the blessing of Moses to underline the complete victory of Moses, God. He is helpless, and now he must have the blessing of Moses. And so in all of this, the Lord, as he had declared earlier when he's going to do this, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. He also, it's called the Lord's Passover. This is his action. Uh, this is his deliverance and no one else's. Uh, he, is, uh, he is establishing this Passover. He is establishing this salvation and no one can stand in his way. This shows the focus is upon God. This is provided by him, established by him, overseen by him. It is his mercy and kindness to his people. He is initiating this grace in sovereignty. And he is initiating this judgment in absolute sovereignty. But we have to be so careful that we don't think of this as just a judgment occurring back then on a particular people. It is intended, as all judgment in Scripture, to preview for us what final judgment will be like. Even in the distinction between Israel and Egypt, that is a distinction that we read. And Jesus is the one that tells us there will be the righteous and the wicked. There will be the sheep and the goats. And so judgment is coming. Paul actually says in 1 Thessalonians that... We turn, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It is a coming wrath. As even in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he goes and says, the wrath is coming, this whole city is going to be destroyed. That is part of our gospel Paul talks about that. He says, according to my gospel, there will be judgment. And so the good news is deliverance from judgment, but judgment is sure. It is coming. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul speaks of this coming judgment. And he explains it over and against what will happen to God's people He says, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. So you see, the very same coming means terrible judgment upon this world, even as it means glory for his saints. The contrast is staggering. And that is why the gospel is urgent. That is why the Bible teaches us now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, next week, next month. I'll get around to it. Today, Christ is offered you. Today, this one who was sacrificed for sinners is offered you. 
And it is in the light that Jesus talked about more than anyone else of the coming judgment of God. See this picture and don't get it out of your mind or think it's just something by the wayside, one event that happened. It is the terrible preview of coming events. So, judgment then and now. Then, because it's so emphasized in the text, unleavened bread then and now. It, he mentions either leavened not to eat or unleavened nine times in that little section on unleavened bread, beginning with verse 14. And it's very poetic it has a very definite structure and repetition. So it's meant to, to be striking and, and uh, memorable in that way. And it emphasizes that they took unleavened bread, that they bake unleavened. It just keeps underscoring this. Why is this so important? One of the reasons is that it teaches them about the swiftness of their deliverance and the sovereignty immediate sovereign action of God. It made me think of Peter, who was in prison in Acts chapter 12. He was bound by two chains. He was between two guards, okay? And two more guards were at the door. And it says an angel suddenly appeared beside him. And I love this. Didn't you actually use this word, but that's what the word. He poked him in the side, woke him up, you know. Wake up. You got to get up. And right when he said get up, chains fall off. Good to have an angel on your side when you're in the dungeon. And he, he says, get up, put your sandals on, wrap your cloak around you. We're leaving and follow me. They go, they just walk right past the guards. Don't know if they didn't see him or they were dazed out or what. Get to the front gate. The big front gate opens of its own accord. Probably the angel had something to do with that. I'm just saying. But it just looked, the way it was described, it just opened up on its own. And he walked out. He was in the streets. And the angel disappeared. Just like that. He was in prison. He was hopeless. He's free on the streets. And that's the thing that unleavened bread was to teach them. It was just like that. We were there. We didn't even have time for the dough to rise. And we were out of there. And isn't that interesting that that particular thing would be remembered all of that time? And along with the unleavened bread are bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter service from chapter 1, verse 14. So they're to remember the bitterness of slavery. Many times in the New Testament, he says, remember we once were dead in our sins. We once were lost in our passions. There's a reminder of the bitterness of our former lives when we hated God. And so there's the bitterness of their enslavement. So unleavened bread and bitter herbs, it shows the importance of ritual. It, it, it points to the importance of physical, specific physical acts that aid that remembrance. Eating unleavened bread, eating bitter herbs as a reminder to help us enter into that event again. And so God establishes, because we're flesh and spirit, there's this communion a constant between our body and spirit. And what we do with our bodies tends to lodge itself in our whole person. 
right? It sways our whole self in a direction. And so in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate our redemption through Christ and we celebrate the glory that awaits us. And as Israel, in doing the Passover, saw themselves in future generations as participating, you see, actually trying to live it out and see themselves there and participate in what God had done in the Exodus. So we are participating through communion with the work of Christ. So the communion tends to, as we trust God in it, as we believe the gospel that is being presented before us, it tends to brand into our hearts the redemption of Christ. That was a phrase I borrowed from one of the commentators. To brand into our hearts the redemption of Christ. And so everything that goes into our worship, I want to underscore, is important, right? From cleaning before and after, the music, the care for the children, the creation of the bulletins, the handing out of the bulletins, ushering, every little part. And I just want to underscore for those of you who prepare the Lord's Supper that you are enabling us to better brand the redemption of Christ into our hearts. Those of you who serve, as you speak this to each other in the pews, or as today the elders speak to you the gospel, we're seeking to brand into our hearts that redemption so that redemption has its full effect in our lives. Interesting when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Maybe it would hit us stronger if we just said, and Jesus said, remember me. Remember me. No. Remember me. Keep remembering me. Keep remembering me. Keep remembering what I've done for you. Who you are because of what I've done for you. What's going to happen to you in the final day because of what I've done for you. What you can be as a people of God in love and service to each other in this world. Keep remembering who you are and what has, how you've been formed. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 5... When Paul is talking about purity and and actually disciplining someone who is flatly uh, living outside of God's word uh, in sexual immorality, he says, uh, take out the leaven that is there because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. The point being, we have been created to be a new pure lump of unleavened bread. We've, we haven't done it of ourselves. We've been created to be a new people uh, that is unleavened. Uh, leaven being treated as, as sin in this case. So it is what Christ has formed us to be. And we're to remember what he has done for us. Well, the, that's then unleavened bread then and now. And then we have the blood of the Passover then and now. Uh, the Passover is emphasized, of course, again and again. The Passover to the Lord, uh, the ordinance of the Passover, as it's mentioned. And then the stating that I will pass over or later he, the Lord, will pass over. And you, you understand, of course, that he it, it is only the blood because he says, when I see the blood. It wouldn't matter who you were. When I see the blood, then I will pass over. 
And the blood, of course, stands for life. It represents life. Uh, That's why they couldn't eat meat with blood because it stood for life. And so the blood represents the fact that a life has been sacrificed. Therefore, the firstborn is safe. But he wouldn't have been safe. The firstborn wouldn't have been safe if the blood had not been shed. And so it says in Hebrews 11, by faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, believing in God's deliverance. And so by faith, we submit ourselves to the precious blood of Jesus, who is called the Lamb who is called, uh, his, uh, Peter says, like a precious lamb that is sacrificed. We submit ourselves to that blood. And if we do not submit ourselves to that blood, if we do not take that upon ourselves for our cleansing and protection, judgment will not pass us over. We will be judged. We will be forever removed from the presence of God. It is only blood that saves us. And so Christ is made in the New Testament the Passover lamb. It's interesting in John 19, he quotes the last part of Exodus 12:46 where it says you will not break the bone of the lamb. And he quotes this to underscore this is the Passover lamb that is being sacrificed on the cross because no bone was broken. He had to perfectly picture that lamb or the lamb perfectly picture him. And as I just said, Paul says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. So in every way, it's emphasized again and again in the New Testament. For Paul says in Acts 20, we are the church of God that he obtained with his blood. Romans 3, he is a propitiation by his blood. That is, he takes away the wrath of God from us by his blood. The blood represents the life that was sacrificed. Romans 5, 9, we're justified by his blood. We're declared righteous and accepted in God's presence only by blood. Ephesians 1, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. We're forgiven, we're redeemed through blood. Ephesians 2, 13 says, We were far off from the covenant people of God, but He's brought us near by the blood of Christ. Or Colossians 1, he says, He's reconciled all things to Himself, whether in heaven and in earth, because He's made peace by His blood. John 1, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 1, 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And isn't it amazing that in Revelation 5, 9, we are, we've entered into a, a heaven at that point to see what is happening at the throne room of God And it says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, speaking to the lamb. And he's called the lamb. I love that when uh, they hear, he hears this roaring voice, John does. And he's thinking, gosh, it's a lion. It's the lion. And he turns around. It's a lamb. (laughs) 
a lamb forever and ever. He is pictured as a lamb to us in some way. That At least that's the analogy or that's the metaphor that is used. That he is the lamb. And so they say to this lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, in that sense, brothers and sisters, the blood that was put on the doorpost, which prefigured the shedding of the blood of Christ, it's the eternal song of the people of God. Because it expresses who God is. God is the God who humbles himself. God is the God who sacrifices himself. God is the God who loves and pours himself out on behalf of others. That's who God is. That's why this blood is a centerpiece of our praise forever. Because it reveals the majestic glory of the almighty God who would give himself away in the person of Jesus Christ. It's that blood that we drink in symbol every Sunday. In a sense, we're standing under the doorpost, aren't we? In a sense, we're putting the blood on the doorpost, making it fresh, so to speak, week after week after week, saying, you are my salvation. You are my cleansing. You are my hope. You are my redemption. You take away the wrath of God. You free me from my sins. And isn't it amazing that God gives us all of this treasure through suffering? Through suffering. I love how Lewis, C.S. Lewis describes Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. He says... It has beauties that break the heart. And I think of this. This is beauty that breaks the heart. God is so beautiful, he breaks the heart. And I don't, who knows what beholding the glory of God is going to be. But in some way, we're going to see this God in his eternal relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to be staggered. At the love we see between Father, Son, and Holy. We're going to be staggered. It's going to capture our hearts to see. And, and that's why stories about love, stories about sacrifice, they just they melt you, don't they? You've cried again and again over somebody's show of love to someone else and their sacrifice for someone else. Or a romantic uh, story that just ends so wonderfully and it was built so well. And Because love just... It is the heart of who we are. And it's the heart of the glory of God. And so we will see in some way this, this love on display. And in some way we will taste it as never before. It will be so real to us. That's the glory. Okay, It's not just we're going to see some brightness, some you know, outward. Though there will be a lot of that, right? There's going to be majesty everywhere in the new heavens and the new earth. But the heart of it is the revelation of love. That's what this is. It's the revelation of love. Revelation of love. And along these lines, we have to talk a little bit about the firstborn because it seems a little odd that so much is made of the firstborn in this passage and the redemption of the firstborn. What the backdrop to all of this is that God is 
the sovereign king who owns the firstborn. The firstborn is his. It, it belongs to no one else. And this goes back even to Abraham because we're shocked that God would come to Abraham and say, I want you to sacrifice your firstborn. And you're kind of like, why didn't Abraham just say, what in the world? Are you out of your mind, God? No, I'm, uh, he just submits. I'm sure it was shocking in some ways to him. And it, we read in the New Testament that he believed he'd be raised from the dead even. Okay, so all of that. But he submitted because it was a recognition, you're sovereign king. You can do whatever you want to with the firstborn because the firstborn belongs to you. You see, Pharaoh had taken Israelite firstborns as though he was God. And he had thrown them into the river with other uh, children as well, the males. And this was his way to exercise his godship, you know, his godlikeness. And so this is a dramatic turnaround where God is saying, no, I deliver my firstborn. They belong to me and not you. And guess what? You lose your firstborn because I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And so the redemption of the firstborn was practiced forever to indicate the sovereignty of God that the firstborn, the first of the fruit, the first of the field, it all belongs to him. It has even meaning for our what we make, what we earn. Um, and I, I want to tell you this. I, I hesitate, but I think it's, it's needful. I was in a uh, hospital yesterday morning with uh, Anwar and Zahida, a new couple in our church from Pakistan. Haven't seen their kids in 11 years because they had to leave for persecution. Their kids have been raised by their grandparents. They see them on Skype and that kind of thing. And they recently have been able to come over here as refugees. He just recently got a job at... Um, just recently got a job at Amazon packing, uh, like you might get at, uh, you know, one of the deliver at UPS or any anywhere packing boxes, moving boxes. So I visited him. He's in the hospital with some heart issues. I'm about to leave. <clears throat> I hadn't even prayed yet, and he says, "Wait, I must give you my tithe." These are people that don't have anything. Okay, they're living in apartments that most of you would not want to live in. And I said, I said, no, no. And he just started counting out the money. And he gave me a certain amount, and I said, this is too much. Did you make X amount of dollars? And so he's a little confused on the denomination of money and everything, so he explained to me how much he had made in two weeks. And I gave him back a little bit of it. I said, okay, this is 10%, but why don't you just give me, because y'all have, and they were just emphatic. It's like, no, no, no. I must pay this. I must pay this. 10% of the measly amount of money that they're able to make right now. That's what this means, you see. That's what this means, that God owns all things. He owns us. He owns what we have. But the most glorious, beautiful thing is that the firstborn was delivered because of the death of a lamb. So the, the firstborn had to be redeemed by a lamb. Jesus is called God's firstborn. 
And in our case, it's the firstborn that dies. So that we, as one commentator called us, we're the lakeborns. <laughs> we're the lakeborns. And all through, all through Scripture, it's interesting. It's, it's the second one that is given the status of the first. Think of Abel as the second child. You think of Isaac instead of Ishmael or Jacob instead of Esau. Even David, Joseph, they weren't the firstborn. And so, in our case, the firstborn sacrifices himself so that we lakeborns now can be included as firstborns with Jesus. Amazing change that has occurred in Christ Jesus. And so as the firstborn, he is ruler over all. The firstborn got a double inheritance, you see, because the firstborn was going to take care of the father's house and he was going to protect the whole household and he had to have resources. So he got double inheritance to take care of everyone else. Jesus has inherited the whole earth, everything. The whole universe is his and he rules it. And he catches us up and gathers us to be firstborn with him, to own the resources with him. And he died in order that we might be heirs. Again and again, it said in the New Testament, he died and delivered us so that we would be heirs. There's much that we can say about this. But this is all of grace and mercy That this one who suffered and died and alone as a human being earned the firstborn status to rule the world. And then he does it not for himself. He did it for us. That we might be delivered by the blood of the firstborn. And then become firstborn ourselves in Christ Jesus. Beauties that break the heart. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you for you were not redeemed by the blood of another. You shed your own blood. And you shed your blood so that we might have everything that you have purchased, that you alone have won. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that as... The writer of Hebrews says, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's not ashamed to call us his family and to give us the inheritance. Lord, we thank you for such grace and mercy. We pray that we will ourselves know the dignity and glory of being now firstborn. As James says, even the poor, the poor themselves are made heirs. Women are made heirs along with men. Gentiles are made heirs along with the Jews who believe in Jesus. Everyone is an heir. Everyone is a firstborn. Lord, we have the dignity and we have resources as firstborn to bring the good news to a lost world. We have the dignity and resources to love others as Christ has loved us, being ourselves governed by that love. Oh, Lord, may it cause us to be humbled and yet to to rejoice and to have a joy that strengthens us 
with an energy to give ourselves away as the newly made firstborn with all the resources of Christ Jesus. Bless us, Lord, to that end we pray. Amen.